what I've been reading. It's been almost a year since I started my current research project. My initial starting point was the intriguing, if somewhat pessimistic, research on learning transfer. However, crawling through citations have got me to some of the more interesting science on how people think the mind works. Having now read over 70 books and 250 papers, a picture is emerging about how it all connects. Now, my views have definitely evolved since the project started, which is probably a good thing. If reading books only reconfirmed everything you already knew, there'd be no point in reading them. Here are a few picks from my most recent batch. Number one, Apprentice to Genius by Robert Knagel. How is elite level science produced? Knagel offers a fascinating portrait of one scientific dynasty working at Johns Hopkins that has produced Nobel and Lasker Prize winning scientists. I found this portrait fascinating because it suggests to me that there is a hidden tacit knowledge involved in producing elite level work. While the scientific foundations learned in school are clearly important, this crucial knowledge is still transmitted mainly via the master-apprentice relationship. My leading explanation for the effect Knagel observes is that through a lifetime of experience, elite scientists build an incredible skill for identifying fruitful scientific opportunities. Since they can't personally pursue all of them, they attract intelligent students and assign these problems to them. By achieving success, the novices eventually adopt the same pattern recognition abilities of the masters and hone their scientific style. This book illustrates the incredible importance of mentors and guidance in doing elite level work. It also indicates why there's so much inequality in output. The knowledge learned in school is necessary, but rarely sufficient to perform at the highest levels. Those who lack access to these mentor networks are often excluded from doing groundbreaking science. Two, a cognitive approach to language learning by Peter Skian. Language learning is a topic where I have a lot more hands-on experience than theoretical backing. Having learned several languages to middling proficiency, I have a lot of intuitions about what works best, but fewer rigorous experiments. Skian's book both sheds light on some experiences I've had while learning a language and also challenge some of my preconceptions. Skian sketches language learning as a process of acquiring vocabulary and grammar while being bound by the constraints of a limited working memory system. A few of his key findings. One, memory plays a much larger role than most realize in language learning. Linguists are obsessed with how we acquire the rules and usage of a language, but it seems like people not only memorize words, but entire chunks of phrases to reduce processing burdens. Two, in speaking, we are overwhelmingly focused on getting our point across. This aids our communication goals, but it can conflict with learning more complex or correct forms of the language since less capacity is left over to focus on those aspects. Three, speed, correctness, and complexity must all trade off under a system. Good language learning involves a mix of practice opportunities that give a chance to strengthen each aspect. Now, I wouldn't change my language learning strategy at the early stage. Skian's work also shows why just having conversations eventually stalls further progress. You need practice opportunities that stretch you because speaking becomes easy long before you become really good. Three, The Sweet Spot by Paul Bloom. Suffering is part of a meaningful life. I enjoy this book because it pushes back against the hedonic emphasis of so much positive psychology. Meaningfulness is not all that related to momentary happiness. Self-chosen challenges are an essential part of the good life. This is obvious to any student of philosophy. Still, it seems to have been largely ignored by social psychology interested in measuring positive well-being. 
Bloom's book surveys the current research landscape, which, to put it mildly, is mixed and confusing. And thus, I found it an interesting window into how science has tried to tackle the problem of meaning, yet I was left with the impression that we haven't made much progress. Number four, Productive Thinking by Max Wertheimer. Max Wertheimer was the founder of Gestalt Psychology. Productive Thinking, published posthumously, is one of his most important works. Productive thinking here refers to creative thinking rather than mere habit or routine thinking. Wertheimer explores a number of intriguing puzzles. My favorite is the process people use while trying to figure out how to solve for the area of a parallelogram. The abstract insight people manage to draw from this determines, in large part, what other types of problems they can solve. Wertheimer here distinguishes between A and B processes. A processes are those where the same principle underlies two problems, even if they are superficially distinct. B processes are problems that look similar, but applying the same principle to both won't work. Consider the process for solving the area of a parallelogram. Rearranging the shape allows us to find the area using a simple formula. In this case, the overhang on one side matches the gap on the other side. You shift it over and it looks like a rectangle. This same process can be used to find the area of certain shapes where those sides match because the protrusion on one side matches the indentation on the other. But it won't work on other shapes where this principle is violated. So even if the shapes themselves look quite similar, the actual principle for where you can apply this technique is rather abstract. In many ways, Wertheimer's book foreshadowed the cognitive revolution back in a time where behaviorist principles were dominant. Number five, Word Problems by Stephen K. Reed. The psychology of solving algebra word problems might seem like an unimportant topic. However, I'm interested in it because it seems to be an example of the difficulty observed with transferring what we have learned in school to real-life problems. Word problems are hard, yes, but they're hard precisely because they ask us to transform real situations into those that are solvable with methods learned in school. How do we do this? Reed explores many different factors that contribute to the difficulty of word problems. For elementary arithmetic problems such as Bob has eight marbles, Jim has six, how many do they have all together? It seems like a central stumbling point for young children is just linguistic. They may not understand what altogether means or that it implies addition. For algebra word problems, the problem seems different. Looking at their errors, students don't struggle with the algebra, but with correctly mapping the situation onto the set of equations implied by the problem. It seems disappointing how bad most people are at this. Most college freshmen, for instance, get wrong. There are six times as many students as professors. Most people match this as 6s equals p when it should be the opposite, 6p equals s. Word problems illustrates both the importance of mastering mathematics knowledge for solving quantitative problems and also how we do students a disservice when we don't equip them with the tools for translating this mathematics knowledge into real life. Number six, self-insight by David Dunning. Dunning is most famous for the Dunning-Kruger effect, which comes from a study showing that most students overpredicted their relative performance on a test. The only exception was the best students who slightly underpredicted their score. In self-insight, Dunning marshals a large body of evidence showing that we're terrible at knowing ourselves. We misjudge our competencies, choices, and character. 
My favorite factoid was that people were about as good at judging someone else's IQ after watching a 90 second video of them talking as people are at judging their own IQ. What explains our dismal self-assessment abilities? Dunning prefers a cognitive explanation. He argues that we misjudge ourselves not because we're lazy or lying, just that self-assessment is a very hard problem. We get inconsistent feedback, struggle to imagine ourselves in different situations, and have little to go on when assessing our aptitude. I wasn't entirely convinced. It seems unlikely that we can systematically assess others much better than ourselves for merely cognitive reasons. Instead, I believe social desirability bias plays a much bigger role. Much of our reasoning aims not at solving problems, but creating justifications for our social selves. Thus, many cognitive biases don't seem like genuine mistakes, but areas where evolution distorts our beliefs to improve our self-presentation. That said, Dunning does give some interesting counter-evidence to this view. For instance, we seem far more accurate at judging our athletic ability than our intellectual skills, and monetary payments don't seem to make much difference in our accuracy either. Regardless of the cause, the difficulty we have in forming accurate self-belief seems like a major problem on the road to self-improvement. Thanks for listening to this episode. More episodes like this can be found by searching for Scott Young Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on most other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider rating my show as it helps other people find out about it. More of my work can be found on my website at scotthyoung.com.